Hello and welcome to Battleground Ukraine with me, Saul David and Patrick Bishop. The main news from the front line this week is that both sides are on the attack. And while Ukrainian forces continue to make incremental gains in western Zaporizhia and around Bakhmut, Russia has intensified operations in the Avdivka area of Donetsk Oblast and southwest of Orokiv to prevent Ukrainian forces from reinforcing the vital Robotinye area. In occupied Kherson Oblast, meanwhile, Ukrainian partisans are said to have used a car bomb to kill the local head of Putin's political party in the town of Novaya Kakovka. Well, further afield, the horrific Hamas attack on Israeli civilians at the weekend, which we covered in an emergency pod on Wednesday, seems to have had several potentially positive consequences for Ukraine, starting with the news that the Biden government in America will try to break the deadlock in Congress over funding for Kyiv by linking it with support for Israel, which traditionally has the backing of the Republican Party. Putin's failure to condemn the Hamas massacres has also had the effect of damaging Israel's hitherto quite cordial relationship with Moscow, which is also good news for Ukraine. We'll be saying more about that later. But then there's some other news. A gas pipeline connecting Finland to Estonia has been severed. And the most likely culprit is, yes, you've guessed it, Russia. We'll discuss the consequences of all this and the latest from Gaza, where the Israeli Defense Forces are gearing up for a huge operation, the nature of which is not yet clear. But first, that news from the uh, from the battlefield. So what can you tell us? Well, in some senses, it's more of the same. All week, Ukrainian forces have been making painstaking progress in western Zaporizhia, where they've been inching ever closer to that important rail and road hub of Tokmak. But also, they've been making gains around Bakhmut and on the Donetsk-Zaporizhia Oblast border. Now, according to Russian mill blogger, Ukrainian forces advance west of Novo Fedorivka, which is 15 kilometers northwest of Robotinye and six kilometers northeast of Verbov. This is likely to be an attempt to widen the breach that has already been made in Russian lines. Elsewhere, the Institute for the Study of War notes via geolocated footage that gains have been made northeast of Mikilsky, close to Vulodar, and near Andrivka, southwest of Bakhmut. Meanwhile, the Russians have launched localized offensive operations of their own in the Avdivka area of Donetsk Oblast and southwest of Orokiv in western Zaporizhia Oblast, possibly to prevent the Ukrainians from transferring forces to Robotinye. According to Russian mill bloggers, Russian forces advanced up to two kilometers near Orokiv. This would be significant if it was true. They are, of course, at this stage unverified, these claims, though the Ukrainian general staff have admitted that the attack involved up to three Russian battalions. The operation near Avdivka might be an attempt to capture that city, but ISW analysts note that this area of the front line is typically manned by regular forces from the Donetsk People's Republic, and that, and I quote, more and higher quality units than those currently deployed in the area would be needed to do the job. So nothing really seismic on either side yet. But what about that partisan attack, Patrick? What have you heard about that? Well, we're often asked about that, aren't we? So the effectiveness of uh, Ukrainian partisans launching behind the lines operations. Well, this is proof that they are a factor. The victim of the attack is Vladimir Malov, the head of the local branch of the United Russia Party, that's the one that supports Putin, in uh, Novaya Kakova, an occupied town of about 50,000 that lies just south of the Dnipro River 
in the Kherson Oblast. Now, that's where the dam is, isn't it, if I recall correctly? Uh, well, he was killed by a car bomb on Saturday and a Ukrainian partisan group called Atesh, which means fire in Crimean Tatar, uh, have claimed responsibility. The Tatars do seem to be at the, very much at the heart of this development, don't they? So down, down the months, you know, we've heard, we've often heard that uh, and it's Tatars, uh, Crimean Tatars, who carried these operations out. And they issued a statement saying, the liquidation of the collaborators who went to serve the occupiers continues and will only intensify. Now, Atesh seems to be uh, one of the most effective of these groups working in Crimea and Kherson. And of course, you know, the Tatar connection is easy to explain because uh, the uh, Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin deported the entire Crimean Tatar population to Central Asia back in 1944. So Kherson is actually a pretty dangerous place. If you're a pro-Putin figurehead or politician, you might recall saw last August the deputy mayor of Novaya Kakova was shot and killed uh, in his home. And then a couple of weeks later, the uh, deputy head of the Kherson region, the administrator, was uh, assassinated with a gunshot to the head. Now, moving on to Gaza, it seems that something that you predicted, Saul, uh, in our emergency pod a few days ago, uh, is about to come to pass. Yes, I'd love to claim credit. It wasn't actually my prediction, but rather one made by the former senior American general I had very fortuitously, I think, at lunch with earlier this week. He said that overall, the Gaza crisis was probably not good for Ukraine because it would move the focus of American policymakers to the Middle East. On the other hand, he said, it would present Biden with the opportunity to push more Ukraine spending through Congress by linking it to support for Israel. This would be a so-called one and done package that would last until after next year's presidential election and therefore uh, sort out the issue of funding until, you know, we know who's next going to be in the White House. Well, that does seem to be exactly what Biden is considering now, according to newspaper reports in the States. And on Tuesday, Biden said he would ask Congress to take urgent action on the conflict. That, of course, is the Gaza conflict, as he declared Hamas to be pure, unadulterated evil and to have broken all codes of human morality, comparing its actions to those of Islamic State. He also warned any country or organization that was thinking of taking advantage of the situation to not do that. He added, let there be no doubt that the United States has Israel's back. We'll make sure the Jewish and democratic state of Israel can defend itself today and tomorrow as we always have. So what, Patrick, do you make of America's backing for Israel? It's to be expected, of course, but might it embolden Israel into taking punitive action, even more punitive action against Gazans in general that will ultimately backfire for it? Well, I think they were going to, they would do that in any circumstances. I mean, it's a horrendous situation, isn't it? The body count keeps climbing on both sides. On the Israeli side, it's now up to 1,200, uh, including 17 British nationals. The dead include children and infants. And there have been claims by the Israeli military that some of them had been decapitated. Well, Israel has responded in its predictable fashion with ceaseless bombing of Gaza. And the death toll there, according to Palestinian sources, is also 1,200 and rising with up to 5,000 wounded. And many of the, uh, of the dead and the injured, say the Palestinian health ministry, are women and children. And of course, uh, Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu is promising that the campaign to eradicate Hamas is only 
just beginning. So the consequence of, of, the, of these bombings, as we said in our special pod a couple of days ago, is inevitably they're going to be uh, very, very large uh, civilian casualties. And that, in turn, will only escalate uh, the problem because, it, for, from an Israeli point of view, because um, it inevitably has the effect, and we're seeing this already, of draining international sympathy for Israel. But to get back to Ukraine for the moment, Saul, um, conversely, the lukewarm reaction of Russia to the crisis has provided another potential boost for Kiev. Now, Putin, as, as we're talking now, Putin has so far failed to call Netanyahu to express sympathy, something you'd naturally expect him to do. And uh, conversely, uh, the Russian state media is trying to make propaganda capital out of the violence by categorizing it as a failure of US policy. And indeed, Putin has said this himself. Um, there's been a certain amount of gloating uh, in the state media about the weaknesses that have been shown up in the IDF and uh, the Israeli security, failure of the intelligence services to see what was coming, and also the missile defense systems, which didn't perform as hitherto they have done very effectively. And so a lot of the missiles fired by Hamas got through hitting Israeli cities and, and killing innocent people. So these Russian commentators are sort of basically gloating, crowing, saying, you know, you've been telling us how rubbish our military is in the light of the invasion of Ukraine. What about yours? Uh, of course, they see Israel very much as an adjunct of the Western security architecture. And I just want to develop this point a bit longer. I've been going on a bit with it, but it's very important this because up until now, Israel has been very measured in its response to the Russia-Ukraine war. I mean, Netanyahu historically has boasted about his friendship with Putin. Israel hasn't provided significant military help to Ukraine. It's declined requests for air defenses. It hasn't imposed sanctions on Russia. It hasn't offered visa-free travel to Ukrainian refugees, all of which uh, put a certain amount of strain on, on the relations between Tel Aviv and Kiev. But Zelensky showing the incredible sure-footedness that he's displayed throughout this this conflict immediately jumped in, was very vocal uh, in his support for Israel, and he compared what was happening there with what's happened uh, to Ukraine. And he says the only difference is that Hamas is a terrorist organization and Russia is a terrorist state. Now, given Russia's, like I say, sort of almost gloating response to the horrors that have happened, and don't forget Moscow's military alliance with Iran, which clearly approved the attack. Tehran clearly approved of the attack, even if they didn't actually coordinate it. All this would seem to me would lead to Israel rethinking its position. And we may very well see a rapprochement between Kiev and Tel Aviv. Well, that would be definitely good news for Zelensky. Okay, so back to that intelligence failure referenced earlier. We've got some inside intel on this, haven't we, um, which helps to explain it. Something to do with pro-Palestinian hackers. Can you enlighten us? Yeah, it's fascinating. It comes from, of course, our resident cybersecurity expert, David Alexander, who's reacted very quickly to this and has flagged up a certain number of reports that I wasn't aware of. Um, and I'll just quote David's message to us. 
pro-Palestine hacktivist groups have been launching cyber attacks against the Israeli rocket attack alert system. These include attacks to prevent the endpoint systems that actually broadcast the alerts from being able to either receive or send on these alerts. These attacks were coordinated with the kinetic attacks or rocket and insurgency, in other words, as the as that actual invasion began. Now, several known pro-Palestinian hacking groups participated in these attacks, including Killnet and Anonymous Sedan, both, of course, suspected of being either supportive by or fronts for Russian cyber intelligence organizations. So that's fascinating in itself. And another group, Anon Ghost, also attacked the software of the Red Alert app on Android phones. Now, this Red Alert app provides warning of rocket attacks directly to the mobile phones of Israeli citizens. And if you remember, Patrick, when we were in Ukraine, they have exactly the same type of system there that give you an early warning. And, you know, we, we were constantly checking our phones to see where the attacks were. And you can see how useful it is. And of course, it gives people more time to seek shelter, especially if they're away from home. Now, the hackers apparently were able to successfully send false alerts of both rocket and nuclear attacks to users of the app in order to cause unrest and disruption. And this also led to a lack of trust in the app itself, which will doubtless be patched very quickly. This is David's line here to prevent a repeat occurrence. David adds that Israel has vaunted cyber capabilities, which we all know about, but these attacks indicate that no one is immune from, you know, the sort of ongoing issues uh, with cyber security. Okay, we mentioned at the top the severing of another gas pipeline. I really hope we'd said the last on that issue, Patrick. But what what do we know about this new one? Well, this does um, remind us of the old Nord Stream attacks, doesn't it, last September saw? Well, this time, this happened on Tuesday, the 48-mile-long Baltic connector link which hooks up Finland and Estonia, both of which, of course, are NATO allies. This pipeline was extensively damaged by, quotes, external activity. This comes from the Finnish president. And the damage, of course, you know, like we're saying, is seems very, very similar to the, to the two Nord Stream pipelines that were blown up last year. And, of course, the finger was pointed fairly and squarely at Russia then, and it, it, that is exactly what's happening now. This is the judgment of uh, someone called Charlie Salonius Pasternak, a security expert. And he says, it seems that the Finnish defense forces and senior figures in the government strongly suspect it was Russia. Who else would have an interest in sabotaging the pipeline? There aren't really a lot of countries that have the capabilities and motivation to do this. This is basically just one. So it seems to be another one of those almost symbolic attacks, doesn't it, on to... NATO members who were very uh, been very strongly pro-Ukraine and by extension, you know, pretty hostile to Russia. Well, you know, what's the Russian motive apart from sending them a signal, disrupting European gas supplies, increasing prices? So again, a bit of deja vu here. This is what we were hearing about last year, was it this time last year? But um, it's, uh, and there has been a little bit of reaction on the markets. There's been a jump in wholesale UK gas prices by 14 percent now if it was russia what done it does that count as a sort of triggering article 5 act you know is 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 this an act of war essentially against a nato member well i think it's as usual because it's the things are pretty murky there's no direct evidence that ain't going to happen okay that's all we have time for in part one do join us after the break when we'll be answering listeners questions uh, and some of them not surprisingly about the effect the hamas attack will have on the war in ukraine
Welcome back. Well, the first question this week is from Lloyd Crawford, uh, we're assuming in the UK, and he says, your recent podcast wrapping up your visit to Ukraine particularly resonated with me. My daughter had just sent me a link to a piece of film on the BFI player showing Belfast at Christmas 1977. I was a teenager growing up in Belfast at the time, and your description of the stoicism of the people of Lviv reminded me very much of the just get on with things attitude of the people of Northern Ireland during a ruthless campaign of terror. Scenes of people dancing in a nightclub bring back memories of the Lamont Hotel massacre. I'm sure Patrick will have covered this conflict at some point and might recognize some of the scenes in the film. And he very uh, helpfully gave us the link. I had a look at it. I'm sure you did too, Patrick. Well, he goes on to say, Lloyd goes on to say, another parallel I think is worth noting is that the IRA were still using terror right up to the moment of the various ceasefires along the way to the peace process, right up to the point at which a deal was announced. The position of the IRA was nothing less than the United Island would be acceptable. Even though the people of Ukraine want all their territory back, they too may have to accept a compromise because if a peace deal is eventually brokered, Russia will need to be able to say they won something, just like Mo Molum had to appease the IRA to some extent. Patrick, what's your feeling about this? Well, it's certainly true. I mean, I, I covered Northern Ireland uh, for many years, and I do remember the, the stoicism of the communities there, um, just getting on with it, as you say. The Le Mans House was a particularly horrible IRA atrocity where they planted kind of uh, rather sophisticated petrol bombs, uh, which blew up in the middle of a crowded kind of social evening in the Le Mans House Hotel, which was just close to, to Belfast, a sort of popular venue for a night out. Effectively, it was like napalm. So I think it was 12 people were killed in the most horrible way and many others injured, suffering terrible burns. It was typical IRA bulls up where they claimed later that I think it's probably true that they'd tried to phone a warning to the RUC, but that the telephone box that they made of call from was was vandalized so typical bit of sort of ira incompetence which cost many lives just again but on the point about uh, having to make compromises i've been listening to testimony from various people talking in ukraine in recent days and you know the spirit we detected there so was completely unshaken in, in the in the intervening time you know there's absolute determination that there there isn't going to be any compromise there isn't there aren't going to be any talks until every Russian has left legal Ukrainian territory. So, you know, I think we've got a very, very long way to go before we get to the sort of spirit of compromise. And, you know, let's face it, it was a pretty shabby deal that we did with the IRA. I, I don't see that that, uh, that day is anywhere near, near dawning at the moment. What do you think, Saul? No, I don't either. I mean, it's, it, it, it is tricky because re reality may eventually intrude uh, uh, the longer the war goes on. We, we've been, you know, going back and forward through the summer and the early autumn as to the possibility of Ukraine making the sort of inroads into Russian defences that will give them a really strong bargaining position and, and basically say, you know, leave our territory um, or we're going to keep the war going. So at the moment, given the given the status of the battlefield, which is it's not really moving much, we still think uh, w without any question that Ukraine is in the ascendant, but it's proving incredibly difficult to liberate its territories. So we are potentially going to have a frozen conflict for a fair bit longer unless more and more of the type of weapons that we've been calling for, including uh, and we've actually, <laughs> interesting enough, I, I'm anticipating a, a mention a little bit further along in the questions, the 
the Atacums, uh, as we're now told to call them. We've, we've been uh, brought up on this by someone who really? Uh, really does know what he's talking about, and they're Atacums. But but if uh, Ukraine gets Atacums and also the long-range missiles from Germany, the Taurus, that could be a big game-changer. But, that, you know, the Atacums are on their way, certainly in the cluster variety, uh, when we don't know. So, yes, it, it, things might change, uh, but, but also there may come a time, I think, when the reality of this does set in and possibly Crimea is beyond recovery. But but I don't think it's going to be left in Russian hands either. I think there might be some kind of neutral status thrashed out. But who knows? We, we, we shouldn't be getting ahead of ourselves and anticipating what's going to happen. This is, after all, for the Ukrainians to decide. Absolutely. We've got one here from Evan Dudik, who's listed as being from Vancouver, Washington, USA. Well, you can't be really from both, can you? <laughs> from Vancouver in Canada or Washington, or maybe the Washington state is just down for anyway. That's not it is. It's very, it's very close, but I think we will have to assume he's Canadian, but, but in any case, let, let's. Uh... Yeah. Okay. Evan, well, you're a Canadian for the purposes of your question. And this is going back to when we were talking about raids last week, you know, the big, the, the kind of very daring raid on, uh, on Crimea, this amphibious raid, it really, it really was quite an extraordinary event. Plus, it, you know, it did actually, I, I was rather poo-pooing the military effect it had. And um, Evan asks us to, uh, or makes a few ref- points about the significance of raids. Now, I, I, I've always been rather dubious about the peculiarly British thing, actually. It's interesting that the Germans, even though they occupied the entire Channel Coast uh, for much of the war, never mounted a single raid of the sort that we did on Dieppe and Saint-Nazaire, etc. Well, he says uh, that, yeah, they do have a, not just a military effect, but a very much a morale effect. And uh, one reference he makes here will interest you, Saul. He says that uh, the uh, Doolittle raid, which was a very early uh, US Air Force bombing raid on Tokyo on the 18th of April 1942, provoked Japan's high command against their better judgment to approve Admiral Yamamoto's plan to bait the US Navy by invading Midway Island. Now, the battle turned out to be decisive because this uh, provoked the Battle of Midway, in which uh, Japan lost four aircraft carriers, and that basically sort of knocked the legs out from under its naval capability. And it's pointed out here by Evan, uh, this is regarded by many historians, as the Battle of Midway being the turning point uh, of the Pacific War. Is that how you see it? Well, it's a fascinating um, reference, actually. Doolittle, by by coincidence, I've literally written a couple of paragraphs about it in the last few days because he was one of the senior commanders, air commanders, in the North African campaign, in the, in the Tunisian fighting, which uh, I'm writing about at the moment. But Evan is exactly right to say that the raid was hugely significant, but more for morale uh, and more to give the American people a kind of sense that we are able to strike back. I mean, if we go back to December 1941 and Pearl Harbor, you know, the shock to the system that was, and then an unbroken run of defeats, really, by the Allies, the loss of Malaya, the loss of the Philippines. So things were going terribly badly. And to be able to strike all the way to Tokyo with an amazing operation, actually, there are only 16 planes involved, B-25s, they reduced their armament, so they were basically defenseless uh, to uh, lighten the load and so that they could actually get as far as Tokyo. And to be able to strike back right into the heart of the enemy really did 
hugely improve morale on the one hand and, of course, uh, infuriate the Japanese on the other. But to say that Midway, um, the Midway campaign was a direct result of, of the Doolittle raid, no, I don't think that's correct. Yamamoto's plan was to move steadily closer to the US. The Midway was a, was a waypoint. They were going to go for Hawaii next, and that would be a jumping off point to the west coast of America. So this was something that was already pre-planned. Was Midway the great turning point? Final point I'm going to make about this. Was it the great turning point of the Pacific War? It was an important turning point, but Japan was still on the move. It was still attacking after Midway. And really the battle that did effectively turn the tide in the Pacific was the Battle of Guadalcanal, which was that island battle that was fought for four or five long months towards the end of 1942. And that was the furthest point really that the Japanese ever got. And it was, you know, it was back all the way thereof. Now, there's one here from Fraser Robinson's soul, which... Um does actually make me feel slightly uncomfortable because I've got a lot of my all my, my Russian-speaking friends, my Polish-speaking friends, Ukrainian-speaking friends all say, look, guys, you've got to up your game with these pronunciations. So uh, Fraser Robinson writes, I really love the podcast and, and I'm a regular listener. You are doing an amazing job and I'm full of admiration for it. Of course, this is going to be followed by a but, isn't it? And here it comes. My only quibble concerns... Uh, pronunciation in Slavic language. He goes on, I mean, Fraser obviously knows what he's talking about. He goes on at some length about uh, how you pronounce the sound. For, it's all about C's, right? C's always, mm. uh, you know, there's so many ways you can say it. We invariably get the wrong one. Um, so, but what, so for example, last week when we were talking about Slovakia, we were referring to the new or the about to be uh, new prime minister as Robert Fico. It turns out his name is actually pronounced Robert Fitzo. So look, we're very, very grateful for all this, Fraser, but we're even more grateful for an offer he makes uh, at the end saying, look, if you've got the time, (laughs) I'm prepared to give you a tutorial on how to get through this minefield, this pronunciation minefield. Well, we're definitely going to take you up on that. So thank you very much indeed. Yeah, I have to say, Patrick, I'm 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 quite pleased that we've both been grouped in this in this <laughs> implicit or is it overt criticism? Because um, you know, as listeners know, I'm I'm appallingly bad with pronunciation. You are much better, but on this one, we've both been caught out. I mean, who who knew that C is pronounced T S? Um, obviously, anyone with a knowledge of those Slavic languages. Thanks so much, Fraser. Okay, moving on. Um, Simon in the UK, uh, question about special forces raid on Crimea. And he makes the point that the distance travelled on jet skis, and we mentioned this last week, I think, uh, over 100 miles, must be a modern equivalent to Operation Frankton, the attack on Bordeaux immortalised in the film Cockle Shell Heroes. And he goes on to say, he notes that Patrick considers that Operation Chariot was not a worthwhile military operation, and also, by implication, questions the Ukrainian effort to attack Crimea. Well, I did say at the time, Simon, if you recall, uh, I I, I did raise the point that this was going to be flagged up by some of our listeners, and I didn't entirely agree with Patrick. And I think the two points you make, yeah, I would support. I think we all, says Simon, accept Napoleon's maxim that the moralist of the physical is three is to the one. The impact on non-Ukrainian uh, forces and civilians of this raid cannot be quantified along with the reduction in confidence among Russians guarding or living in Crimea. I believe it to be significant and explains the publicity of a secret special forces operation. And the secondary impact on Russia would be to have to expend additional energy guarding against further raids. And this will take resources away from other frontline activities. I made this point actually interesting enough a few weeks ago, 
ago about raids that were done in Italy uh, during the Second World War, one of the raids that I'm going to be covering in my forthcoming book, Sky Warriors. Patrick, is there something in this? Does Simon have a point? Yeah, we, well, we could go back and forth on it a lot. But I stick to my original belief that uh, too much too many resources, too too many lives indeed were lost in these things, which in my view ultimately were sort of propaganda stunts. But to get back to Op Frankton, this is the um, Cockleshell Heroes uh, raid on, up the Gironde River. Is that the one you're going to be reconstructing the training for that in, a, in next week's all on your epic canoe voyage up the west coast of scotland is that related to that or have i got that wrong? yeah you're very close patrick and we, we should say that in in a couple of weeks time i'm going to be absent from the podcast as i'm doing this uh, this paddle and, and the wonderful roger morehouse will be filling in for me but no you're close the paddle was using almost identical uh, canoes or kleppers uh, as they're known uh, two-man canoes that were used for operation frankton but what we're re- recreating is a training run done by the special boat section i mean without getting uh, you know, too deeply into the acronyms of the Second World War. There are basically three groups that are seen as the forefathers of the modern SBS, our special boat service today. One of them were the Cockleshell Heroes, and the other one was the special boat section, which was the original one raised in 1940. And they had the most grueling uh, training process in which at one stage they covered 80 nautical miles in canoes in two days. Now, we're planning to do it in three days for charity. Am I an expert canoeist? No, I am not. But we've got one of the best people in the country uh, accompanying us to to show us the ropes james holland my fellow military historian will be uh, joining us and it should be a lot of fun and hopefully we'll raise a bit of cash for charity along the way yes we've, we've got an interesting flag up here from emir who asks us what we make of a meeting which took place between foreign minister sergey lavrov and the hamas leader hania in moscow i think this was a uh, it was last year. So he's making the point that clearly there are, you know, kind of um, contacts between at uh, the very highest level between, uh, you know, Hani is, is effectively the political leader of, of Hamas in exile. I think, where does he live in uh, in the Gulf somewhere? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, what do we make of this? Well, you know, since the terrible events, initially, I thought I couldn't really see any particular benefit for Russia in really being deeply involved in what has happened. But I'm beginning to sort of revise that view a bit because there are, from their kind of very uh, particular perspective, there are potentially good things coming out of it, some of which I mentioned earlier. I mean, the, the, uh, indeed, you've got com- Russian commentators coming out and saying absolutely uh, straightforwardly, this is great because it detracts attention from our own situation. I'm just going to quote one now. The mess is beneficial for Russia because the globalist toad, i.e. America and its allies, uh, will be uh, distracted from Ukraine and will be busy trying to put out the eternal Middle East fire. This comes from a guy called Sergei Mardan, who is a TV, uh, an ultra-nationalist TV commentator. So that's pretty much how we read it initially. So there is um, quite a lot of, you know, uh, hand-rubbing going on in Russia for that reason, that A, the, the West is going to be uh, distracted by what's going on there. But also, as, as I was saying, it's it, it sort of uh, anything that throws a spanner in the works, anything that complicates matters is, again, from the Russian perspective, to be welcomed. I think it may be a very short-sighted position to take because it will focus attention on Russia's relationship 
with Iran, uh, the West would be looking much more closely at that than it has been. It's aware of it, of course, but it's been uh, inclined to just let it slide for the moment. I think that's going to change. So I think we'll be seeing a lot more heat on on Russia over its ties with Iran. And as I said earlier, previously pretty friendly relations between Moscow and Tel Aviv. I think they'll be coming to an end, at least temporarily. Yeah, this meeting took place last year, I think, as you said, Patrick. Um, and and it, you need to see the meeting in terms of the context of the Ukraine war. I mean, while Israel hasn't been supportive of Ukraine in terms of sending weapons, it has condemned the invasion. It's made no bones about where it stands in that sense. And in terms of the kind of fraying diplomatic links between Jerusalem and Moscow after the uh, full-scale invasion of Ukraine, Russia has really been, you know, looking out for uh, more friends. I mean, we can see, you know, it doesn't have many friends left, does it? I mean, let, let's be truthful. And so exploring links with Hamas was just kind of another way of opening up these kind of links, you know, leverage. I mean, so I don't think it's a huge amount more than that. Do, do we believe that Moscow was behind and therefore encouraged Hamas and possibly even funded Hamas to carry out these horrific attacks? No, I'm not. I'm really not buying that. I mean, Iran is effectively the paymaster is effectively the the controller of what goes on in terms of those terrorist groups surrounding Israel. Uh, they are not controlled by Russia. And although Russia may have, you know, latterly after the event uh, taken some solace, although you've pointed out, Patrick, quite rightly, that it, it works both ways, of course, were they involved from, from the start? No, I don't think so. I think Russia must realize that to make an enemy of Israel is not a terribly good idea. Yes, there were mistakes made here. Yes, its military or its intelligence services have been shown to be wanting, but they are pretty effective overall. Uh, and the last thing you want, frankly, is for Israel to be providing Ukraine with the type of weaponry, particularly anti-missile weaponry that, that it has. Um, so, no, I'm not buying the fact that the Russians were directly involved in all of this. But as we've already said, they've been trying to make some political capital out of the war. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Do join us on Wednesday for a terrific interview we've got lined up for you. And then again on Friday, when we'll be looking back over the week's news, delving into it, trying to make sense of it all. Goodbye. Goodbye.